Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Bruce Royal continues our series of messages on the Gospel according to Mark. Today, looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 50. And now, here's Bruce. Well, good morning. Nice to see your smiling faces. Yeah. Thank you, worship team. Appreciate that. Always nice to have your son playing worship for you. Let's begin our little portion this morning. We're going to read from Mark chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 14 to 50. So I'll read through those quickly for you just to refresh you. So we're beginning at Mark chapter 9. We're looking at verses starting from verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about, he said. The man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground and he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw Jesus, immediately threw the boy into convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him in the fire or in the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me over my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit, you deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive him out? He replied, this kind came out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. After three days he will rise. But they will not understand what he meant. They were all afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the road they were arguing about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took the child and had him stand with among them. Taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever welcomes one of these little ones in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome or does welcome does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Jesus, our teacher said to John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. 
We told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one does a miracle in my name. Can the next moment say anything bad about me? For whoever is not against us, forever is is not against us. I, I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and to go into hell where the fire never goes out and your foot causes you to sin. Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Well, there's a lot in that portion. A lot in that portion. And my challenge is to cover it for you in the next 25 or so minutes. So, I'll endeavor to do that. So, let's begin our portion with some questions and some observations, just to stir our thinking as God stirred mine. Verse 14, we pick up, following the transfiguration, an encounter with the other disciples, including Peter, James, and John who were part of this inner three, this inner group, the others who were arguing with the teachers of the law. For Jesus and the three disciples, they came from a mountaintop experience that was a a glorious experience, seeing Jesus transfigured, back to the typical issues of the day. It's though they're up here, and all of a sudden, they go back, you know, and back to listening to the disciples arguing with the teachers of the law. When has arguing ever got us anywhere? Who is the winner in an argument? Particularly about the Bible. Why in verse 15 were all the people so overwhelmed with Jesus? You wonder... Was he the celebrity? Did they regard him as the rock star of the day? Did they chase after him? Oops, sorry. Sorry. Why did the people think about Jesus? And what, what was their impression? Who was standing before them in the flesh? Who was this person? Jesus also noticed the argument. And knowing already, he wanted the people involved to explain to him What was worthy of the argument in verse 16? Surprise of all surprises, there's no response to explain why were we arguing. And in verse 19, we see Jesus. He was so frustrated by the person's comments regarding his son that he criticized the generation. He said, oh, unbelieving generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? 
And we contrast that response with Jesus' response to the centurion who approached Jesus and said, I am a man under authority and I understand authority. If I tell this person to go, he goes. He says, I recognize that you have the same authority. He understood and he gave Jesus the proper respect that God was worthy of. Jesus may, in his comment, may have been weary of the disrespect for him and his father. We read in John chapter 1, verse 12, he said, He came to his own, but his own what? Received him not. Yeah. So what's different in this case? It sounds like Jesus is a frustrated parent. I told you, kids. You know, I told you, and you don't listen, and I told you again, and guess what? You're still not listening. And this is the God of the universe who's making this comment about the people before him. Sometimes the Bible in its narrative seems to raise questions that are not easily answered. Questions often that pertain to the identity of who Jesus is. And I think it's intentional to cause these disciples to ponder and wonder, who really is this person before us? Who is this man, this character? What is his identity? There's so much about him that is not easy to comprehend. So logistically, logically, what we should do is study and dig deeper to understand who the person of Jesus is. So we even begin to understand the questions that we're answering. What is his identity? Much less formulate an answer to that. Verse 20, the Spirit immediately, that word, that's a theme word throughout the book of Mark, immediately, you'll see that many times, responds to the presence of Jesus. Responds to the presence of God by convulsing and throwing that boy on the ground and rolling him like a little dog. And whatever power, whatever intimidation, whatever strength and whatever fearsome nature that that evil spirit possessed was gone immediately, vanished in the presence of God. Is this the response of the power of evil when it encounters the Spirit of God and the person of Jesus who indwells us? Do we consider and do we ponder the power of God that we possess within us and what the power of God's power over evil actually is. Jesus brings the conversation back to the Father and back to the point of the engagement. The boy, by his father's testimony, had been experiencing this terrible life. He'd been possessed his whole life. And he says, anything, Jesus, you can do is appreciated. Take pity on us, show compassion to us. Jesus notices the phrase, if you can do anything. If you can do anything, in verse 23. A challenge. 
Or is this a question? Because he's saying the Father, nobody can do anything, not even your disciples can do anything for my boy. In other words, he's saying, is God real? Or doesn't he even care about people like me? Jesus' response opens the door. Not only that, he blasts off the hinges. He says, everything is possible. Everything is possible. Miracles like this are amazing, yes? But most miracles are temporary in nature. If you think about it. Casting out demons. Jesus was very specific in this case. He said, I would command you come out of him and never enter him again. He doesn't always say that. Demons can re-enter afterwards. Healing the sick, we can become sick again. Raising the dead, even. Lazarus, he died. I'm sure he died. Or else he's a very old man. These miracles are wondrous and they grab the attention. But, and Stan was, was, was alluding to this in, in his, his communion. He's, they pale in the comparison to the greatest miracle of all. That we're all blessed with. Forgiveness of sin. Unrestricted access to God. Indwelling of the Holy Spirit is permanent. All of those things are permanent in nature and they're all miraculous. They're miracles. The key, the condition necessary is belief. The child, the father said, I believe. Belief. What is that? What was Jesus looking for in our believing? The Father acknowledges that he believes, but he also confesses his unbelief. An honest response. I unbelieve at times. And it is the root cause of prayer. Help me in my unbelief. Help me in my weakness. Shall we pray as the Father has and reflect an examination of ourselves. Help me overcome my unbelief. The things that frustrate you, Jesus, that I do. The things that get in the way of simple trusting faith and childlike belief. Not doubting or competing with my own desires. There is so much it's included in the phrase, a person who believes. How can we focus our lives and demonstrate to Jesus that we believe. Jesus expands the parameters of believing in Matthew 21, 21. He says, if you have faith and do not doubt. Why does the concept of belief, the simple aspect of belief, elude us at times? What if I asked everyone to write down what it means to believe in Jesus? Ooh. 
what will the responses look like? Could we articulate that in words to our satisfaction? Take 30 seconds and think about what it means to believe in Jesus. We're going to pause for 30 seconds and we're going to think about that. And I'll chill. You can write down your thoughts if you like, or you can store them up here. Was it easy? Did you say, nailed it? (laughs) No. Or, did we even scratch the surface of what it means to believe? Could I even begin to gather my thoughts in a way that I was satisfied, that I understand what it is to believe? I'm in the same place you were. I'm not Mr. Smarty Pants up here who knows the answers. I had to go to the internet to find out what the, even the surface of that thought looks like. And it says the word believe in the Bible means more than simply agreeing in our minds that something is true. It means trust. That we believe so strongly in God that we are w- willing to commit our lives to Him and live the way that He knows He wants us to live. Belief. Now, that is a commitment to believe. It's worthy of taking time to study offline and to consider in our minds and our hearts and our spirit what it is that I believe. Why do I believe? Who do I believe in? Interesting comment here regarding, in verse 25, the crowd that was gathering and the subsequent gathering of the popularity of Jesus. And both he discouraged. Jesus didn't want the crowds. He didn't want the popularity. Much of Jesus' ministry was done in such a way that he didn't attract attention and he didn't want it. Jesus was content to preach the word and to slip away quietly. He realized that the crowd had a very different agenda for him as their leader and their king. He was not about to let the crowd set the agenda for his time in ministry. The casting out of the Spirit raised questions for the disciples in verse 28. Why could they not cast out the Spirit? And Jesus could. Why? They must have thought, why? Jesus answers the question privately in verse 29. This kind of Spirit comes out only by prayer. In some translations it says prayer and fasting. And I don't know the exact answer of why Jesus made this comment. Commentators have a variety of responses of why Jesus said this. Although I heard something interesting not long ago, a comment that recently has caused me to rethink who I am and help me partially answer this question. The comment said, we are not physical beings living in a spiritual world. We are spiritual beings living in a physical world. 
What's the difference? One sees us as our home in this world, and we have the pleasure of visiting the spiritual. The other says we are a spiritual being. Second Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, a new creation, all things are passed away. Behold, all has become what? New. The point is, the, the, the conduit that we use as spiritual beings to communicate with our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is prayer. That's how we communicate. Prayer and communion with God are vital evidences of belief. We could easily, for the rest of the morning, talk about prayer and examination of the Lord's Prayer and example of how we should pray. But we'll leave that for an opportunity for your own homework. Verse 30 changes up the topic to something similar that's been repeated before. Mark 31 says, he announces his death. He tells the people he's about to die. Each prediction of his death, and he makes it in, in chapter 8, he makes it in chapter 9, he makes it in chapter 10, predicting that he's about to die. And each prediction identifies him as the Son of God. But in each section, he provides slightly more information about the circumstances of his death. He told them in segments so they could understand and remember the details. They told them everything at once. They wouldn't remember and they wouldn't understand. Rather, Jesus chooses to drip feed information. Fragment by fragment. The time and the circumstances are completely set and foretold through prophecy of the old and through Jesus' words himself. Jesus is identifying himself through the Old Testament that he is the Messiah. He's saying to his listeners and to us, connect the dots. You can see them, connect the dots. But in verse 32, they weren't connecting the dots. The arguing continues in verse 33. The only, the topic has changed here. Same result as verse 14. Arguing gets you nowhere. Arguing gets you noticed for the wrong reason. That's how arguing gets you. I can only imagine the standard that they were using. The reason for why they were arguing, who is the greatest disciple? The disciples wanted to know Who's the goat? Who is it? I can only imagine the standard in which they were measuring themselves to distinguish greatness. And it wasn't who had the most likes or comments, but it was something like that. Although man's idea of a great ministry is often different than God's view, Verse 35, Jesus used the opportunity to teach and expand the disciples' appreciation of the kingdom. Always going back to teaching them about the kingdom. Jesus changes the focus of being great to being first. And under the ever-watchful eye of God, the person who puts others genuinely ahead of them and desires others to succeed is a great servant and deserves to be first. And only God sees. 
and only God knows the heart. Although that approach will never get me or you greatness in this world, but of course the master of this world that we serve is not of this world. The master is in heaven. And we are spiritual beings living in a physical world. The subtle acknowledgement to let go of this world and the need to please ourselves and focus on God and be led by the Spirit. Somehow, we, other people, the church in places at times, we have falsely convinced ourselves it is possible to do both, to live in the world and to be lived and led by the Spirit. Sometimes we say we want to break the ties and unleash the bonds that hold us captive to this world and live completely for Christ. Yet somehow, at the same time, try to live peacefully in both realms of the world and in the Spirit. Why is that so difficult? Why is that so impossible? Has that ever been your experience? It leads to frustration. And it leads to, at times, frustration with our Christian lives and our Christian experience. Why does God's peace not come? And the sense of his abiding spirit not fully realized within us. Well, Jesus said it plainly. He said, take this child, using that little child as an example for the adults to emulate. He says, here's a, here's a child. What did he say in verse 36? He took the child ahead and stand among them and he said, Whatever, whoever welcomes one of these in my name. And we're familiar with the passage. We're also familiar with the usual attitude that had been demonstrated by disciples towards children. We read about it more in Mark 10. Comments like, children are not welcome, don't bother the teacher bringing the children to them, they're too busy for that, and the more important business to attend to, and don't waste the time with Jesus' time with his children. For reference, he picks up this discussion with the disciples in chapter 10, verse 13. So we're going to hear about that again. But what is it about little children that caught the attention of Jesus? And what is it about older people that lack that quality? Children are, young children, are naturally trusting and want to believe. They just are. That's how God made them. They desire to know the truth. They haven't in their innocent young state been tarnished by cynicism and betrayal that leaves us hardened. Little kids. Children realize that they are powerless and they are okay relying on others for their help and security. They're powerless. But I'm okay with it. I got my mom, I got my dad, I got other people. That's all I need. I'm good. Ironically, being powerless and relying on others causes adults to freak out. 
I got to rely on everyone for everything, and I don't have any power of my own. I'm out of control. I know how I feel. How can I, we, as adults, who may be a bit skeptical, a bit cautious, and at times untrusting, renew ourselves to become more like children that Jesus welcomes? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that question. It's amazing. Why does God's peace not come and the sense of God's abiding spirit not fully realized? It comes back to letting go of ourselves and the things that we cling to for security. The desire to be recognized. The desire to feel important. And allow pride to grow to maturity so there's not much room for anyone left in the room. I've considered this, and I conclude that for me, maybe for you too, that there must be a radical turning point. An intentional decision that says essentially, I'm going to let go completely of my personal agenda and allow you, God, full access of my life. I'm convinced that my ways are so terribly flawed and I am now prepared to trust you completely as a child and not immediately regret my decision. Maybe today is the day of that turning point in our life. I'm going to do something different today. I'm going to hang on to this for the rest of the... (laughs) I'm going to stay at the front following this message, and I'm going to go in the library. And I'm going to invite anyone who God is calling to turn their lives over completely to him. As a child. And if you feel that God's calling you to do that, you can join me in prayer in the library following the meeting. No pressure, no obligation, but if God is calling you. The God's calling upon us is subtle. It may be a sense of uneasiness in our spirit or a thunderous loud voice that says, this is for you. But the response is, I only ask that we listen and we obey God's voice. The last portion, I'm out of time here, from verse 42 down to the end of the chapter. Jesus is severe on anyone or anything that causes anyone to sin. He says it'd be better for a person not to exist than to cause sin. Why? Jesus then launches into a dialogue where the cause of sin is equated to your hand, your foot, your eye. Things we do, the places we go, the things we see. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and what is pleasing to the eye. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, the fall. And the consequences of the fall are their eyes are open and they knew good from evil. Better to enter life, kingdom, maimed. Enter life crippled, enter the kingdom with one eye, than to be thrown into hell, and he repeats it, hell, hell. 
It's like John chapter 3 in John chapter 3, 3 in, in the King James. It says, Verily, 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 I say unto you, you must be born again. He repeats that for emphasis sake. The contrast is struck, the warning is given. Enter life, the kingdom, or enter hell. The presence of God, or enter the presence of God, or enter the total absence of God in the presence of evil. We could spend the afternoon debating and the meaning of hell and its environment, but we do have a picnic to go to, so we'll... I will say that I believe the presence of life and entering the kingdom represents the presence of God and the abiding life of a Christian. The presence of hell represents the absence of God and his Holy Spirit, which limits the full power of evil. Therefore, hell represents the entering of the fullness of the power of evil without God to intervene. What a horrible thought. The contrast, life-death with God, facing evil without God. Therefore, the answer to the question, it would be better for that person not to exist than to cause sin. And why? Because Jesus warns us to avoid the consequences of hell. I'm going to pray, and the worship team, I don't know if I've used your time up or not, but I'm going to close in prayer and then let let us know. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the way the Word of God opens up our thoughts, our hearts, our spirits, helps us to, to ask questions, most of all, Lord, about who you are. We pray you would draw us closer into relationship with you. We pray that you would give us the strength the boldness and the courage to live as children lived in their innocent state of living completely for you and being at total ease and total comfort with trusting you, Jesus. We commit ourselves to you in the name of the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.